the incarnation is when we think about God as one who not only is good, but who does good, the focal point of the God's good action toward us, its climax, if you will, is uh, Jesus Christ. And he is the Savior. And when we confess him, when we follow him, uh, when we love him, we receive a share in what is what is his and what is his is what is common to the father and the spirit does doctrine really matter the apostle paul once wrote to a young pastor named titus instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine welcome to credo podcast where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences here's your host Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. I must admit that one of my favorite books of the Bible is the Psalms. And the Psalms have really been, uh, I I should say, uh, on my shoulder throughout my entire Christian life. I keep returning to them again and again, uh, not only for devotion and to understand um, spirituality, but ultimately to know who God is. I can't help but think of one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 107, 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That line is uh, so basic to the Christian faith. It's so basic to the Christian life, in fact. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what does it mean for God to be good? And how does God's goodness, after all, connect uh, to other attributes that we're so used to talking about, such as his love and his eternality and so, so many others? How does God's goodness even tie into discussions of, say, his simplicity or his immutability? How does God's goodness actually connect to the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, these are not your typical questions. These are not the questions that typically get asked when we enter into conversations about God's goodness, but they are questions that we should be asking because if we ask these type of questions, we might just discover that God's goodness means, well, far more than what we think or what we see on the surface. And not only do we see the depths of God's goodness in the Psalms, but throughout the Scriptures, and I would also add the theological, the Christian, even the classical tradition, and some of the great thinkers of the Christian faith, from Augustine to someone like Thomas Aquinas. Well, I have asked Christopher Holmes to come on the Credo podcast and to shed light on God's goodness in a way that brings us into contact with that Christian tradition and ultimately books like Psalms or specific Psalms like this one, Psalm 107. If you don't know Christopher Holmes, well, you are missing out. Uh, He is not only a, a professor of systematic theology in New Zealand, but he also has written a number of, well, very helpful and illuminating books. I would encourage you to pick up his book on the Holy Spirit, published with Zondervan. 
in the Dogmatic series, but you also may want to grab uh, another recent book by Christopher Holmes called The Lord is Good, Seeking the God of the Psalter, published by IVP Academic. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the Credo Podcast. Thank you so much, Matthew, for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Now, the first thing I have to say before we dive into some of these deep theological matters is, well, I'm in Kansas City, and you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are in New Zealand. Tell us a little bit about how you got there and well, what life is like there and how it's so different uh, maybe from somewhere like Kansas City. Yeah, um, thanks, Matthew. Yeah, I, um, uh, my family and I have been in uh, Dunedin, New Zealand for 11 years now, and Dunedin is on the South Island. There are two islands, the North Island and the South Island, and we're um, we're at the very bottom or near the very bottom of the South uh, Island. So um, the University of Otago, where I teach, has, is the southernmost university in the world. Um, we're at, I think, 40, nearly 47 degrees south, um, and it's a stunning a stunning spot, a stunning part of the world. Um, we we ended up here um, because, well, there was <clears throat> there was a job available in systematic theology, and I applied for it. And um, my wife and I sensed that it was the, the the right the right thing to do was to take it when it was offered to me. And so we haven't really um, looked back. Uh, I have great colleagues and um and i'm grateful that i can be a, a theologian a christian theologian in a in a secular um setting so it's quite um it's quite mm. uh it's quite privilege it's not an easy privilege by any stretch of the imagination but i am uh, thankful and before coming here i did teach um on the canadian prairies uh in winnipeg manitoba at uh, providence theological seminary uh, I was there for um, four years before um, coming down to um, Dunedin uh, to the University of Otago. And we were just talking uh, before we started on the podcast that uh, in this journey that you just outlined, uh, someone like John Webster was uh, especially influential on in your life. Yes. Yeah. In, in many respects, not just in an intellectual sense, but in a theological sense, but very much in a spiritual sense, um, John was was uh, an immensely holy person, and um, one who had a, a wicked sense of humor, uh, just a delightful <laughs> sense of humor. And he um, he, I owe him many favors. Uh, he was always um, very patient and willing to offer the right criticism uh, at the right time. Um, I was very fortunate when I was a student at Wycliffe College in Toronto to have him on my uh, doctoral dissertation committee. And I certainly wouldn't be talking with you um, today if it wasn't for his encouragement and his evangelical joy. Mm. Well, I find that uh, the holy those who are the most holy tend to have the best sense of humor. So uh, that doesn't entirely uh, surprise me. Now, you, you've been focusing a lot of your attention in recent years on the doctrine of God, uh, which I certainly appreciate. And uh, you've written on a particular topic, the goodness of the Lord, 
looking to the Psalms uh, especially, I must admit, uh, this is not uh, a topic that uh, you typically see theologians writing about. Uh, there may be all kinds of reasons for that. But as soon as I started to read uh, your book, The Lord is Good, I started to notice this is not uh, your typical book on, say, divine attributes or even on the topic of the Psalms. In fact, uh, you approach the goodness of the Lord uh, through a very uh, what well, we could say a, a metaphysical lens, one that actually uh, not only sheds light on what the, what certain psalms are after, but also uh, sheds sheds light on theology proper as a whole. And one of the first things you do is you start off with uh, really a whole treatment of divine simplicity. So I guess the first question I want to ask you is what in the world does God's goodness have to do with divine simplicity? Maybe you could define what you mean by simplicity and uh, help us connect those dots. Sure. Um, thanks, Matthew. So uh, when I use the language of simplicity and write about simplicity, I I'm, I'm, I recognize that it's, it's not a, 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 a biblical word. It's not a, a biblical designation, but it captures, I think, a, a deeply biblical truth. And that is to say, um, following the lead of Thomas Aquinas, that all that is in God is God. So when we talk about God's goodness, we're not talking about a part or a dimension of God. We are instead um, following the lead of the Psalms, indicating that God is goodness itself. And so the, the impetus for writing first on simplicity in the book really comes from that um, simple word, are, in Psalm 119.68. You are good. And um, I think simplicity, as someone like Thomas Aquinas understands it, helps us to appreciate that God doesn't just put on goodness, um, that, that God does not simply act in a manner that is good, though that's, of course, true, but that God is goodness itself, mm. in that um, goodness has a kind of biblical density, if you will, that no other um, name or attribute or perfection has. Um, there's a kind of uh, priority um, given to it in the Psalms. It's it's quite clear. And so um, so simplicity language to me, um, while it, it may sound rather daunting, actually captures quite an elegant and, and simple theological and biblical truth that when we um, confess that the Lord is good, as indeed the Lord is, we're saying something that is absolutely true with respect to the, the very sort of being of God, that God is goodness itself. You know, one of the things that is so striking about what you just said is, you know, if, if we understand just in the strongest sense, that God, he, he doesn't merely possess good. He, mm. he doesn't merely just act in a good way at a particular point, but he, he is good. Uh, if that's true, then it, it's very striking that, well, when we speak of the goodness of God, or, or perhaps we could even use other words like his perfection, mm. uh, when we speak of his perfection, it's, a, it, it's pure uh, it's it's a pure perfection, yeah. Uh, as opposed to say, 
a derivative perfection, which is so amazing to think about because that that means that whenever we talk about God's goodness, it's not that removed then from our affirmation of divine aseity. Mm-hmm. Would you would you agree with that? And 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 how would you articulate goodness in a way that connects it to our understanding of of divine aseity? Mm. Yeah. Um, thanks, Matthew. Those are great questions. It's <laughs> it's uh, just wonderful to have the opportunity to talk about these really important matters in uh, real time. Yes, um, I think uh, with respect to aseity, um, again, it's not a, a biblical idiom, but it, but it captures something that's so profoundly biblical, which is to say that God is um, ontologically self-sufficient. So some of your listeners will be thinking, well, what did Holmes just mean by that? Basically, that, that God has life um, in and of himself, that God is good in and of himself. And so God doesn't need anyone or anything in order to be good. God doesn't need anyone or anything in order to be the one God has always been, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that, I think, is the the basic and quite majestic truth that aseity captures. If you think of the um, language of um, that Paul uses in Acts chapter 17 in his famous sermon that the God is in need of no thing, that God needs nothing outside of God in order to be. And so when we talk about the relationship of aseity to um, simplicity, we are saying simply that that all that God, all that is in God is God. So when we talk about goodness as being something that is in God, yes, but it, it is it, it is actually God himself that God is good in relationship to to himself. God does not become good in relationship to something outside of himself. So not God is not good as a result of having created a world that is good, indeed very good. God is simply um, goodness. And so the, the language of aseity, I think, helps us to, to appreciate that God has no um, helpers with respect to being God that God um, isn't dependent on anything outside of God in order to be, that God just is. And that's one of the, you know, the great truths of, of um, Christian faith as we receive the testimony of both scriptures, is that we, we encounter and meet a God who is in need, uh, not in need of, of what he creates, but rather creates simply to share um, the goodness and, and love that he is with with us and the created order, which of course is not God. <laughs> you know, one of the, when we talk about goodness, uh, one of the discussions that we, we just have to turn to is the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, because mm-hmm. when we say God is good, we are simultaneously saying, well, the Trinity, the, the Holy Trinity yeah. is good. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. uh, that, that of course, it should raise some fascinating and very fruitful questions. Um, on the one hand, we know that Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, well, the, the essence isn't somehow divided uh, between them as if, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit only have part of the essence. Uh, when we talk about the Son, for example, no, we say He is true God. Um, and uh, we can even speak in more technical language when we talk about the essence to say that uh, well, the, the persons are uh, 
each each person of the Trinity, well, they they we can refer to them as a subsisting relation. To use some of Thomas Aquinas's uh, um, vocabulary, uh, in other words, we're trying to highlight there that um, well, this this one essence um, has three modes of subsistence, and and we could talk about say uh, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, the Spirit is spirated. And, and as we, we speak in these more technical ways, we're, we're trying to preserve both, um, well, the, the distinction between the persons, between their, their relations, as we just mentioned, but we're also trying to safeguard the equality, uh, the equality of, of the persons and, and make sure that we're not uh, at any point um, subordinating one so that they are less of that essence than, than another. But, but, of course, when we get into these more complicated discussions of the Trinity, um, immediately we, we have to recognize that, well, whatever attribute we are referring to, so in this case, goodness, uh, it's not as if uh, one person of the Trinity uh, is good, but, but not the others. That, that, I suppose, would be disastrous. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, we can say that, uh, well, no, all three persons of the Trinity have this essence in common, which includes everything, uh, inc- well, includes goodness itself. And at the same time, um, and, and you shed some light on this, at the same time when we're uh, distinguishing the persons, um, there seems to be good scriptural and even um, Augustinian reasons for <laughs> associating, or, or, or maybe we want to use a, a, a different word like appropriating, uh, goodness to say the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is, of course, a lot to take in, but uh, maybe you could help us navigate some of these tricky Trinitarian waters. Yes, um, with God being my helper. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I've you referred to Augustine a moment ago, Matthew, and I, I think Augustine's De Trinitate or his great book on the Trinity is perhaps the most um, insightful. Um, account of of God's life that we have uh, in the in the tradition and in book five of on the Trinity Augustine makes a, a lovely distinction that he thinks has real scriptural precedence and that is to say that some things are said of God um, relationship wise or are said of God essentially Mm. while other things are said of God um, relationship-wise. So to give an example, when we talk about divine goodness, we are talking in an essential or a substantial register. One essence is common to the three persons, and that the essence that is common to them is absolutely and supremely good. So we would never say that the Father is better than the sun or or the spirit or vice versa. Um, however, when we talk about what distinguishes, as we must, the father, uh, for example, from the son, scripture teaches us that the father is begetter while the son is begotten. That is to say, the son is eternally born of the father. And so um, there's it's it's always a it's a perennial challenge for Christians, I think, to, as we read scripture to appreciate that God is um, one, 
uh, in that our confession of the Trinity doesn't detract at all from God's oneness, but actually helps us to um, indwell and appreciate it, that one essence is common to these three, and that essence is supremely good, and that um, when we consider how the Holy Spirit may be said to be good, um, or the, the Father may be said to be good, or the Son may be said to be good as we must, then we're in some um, really sort of delicate theological terrain. As I'm sure you and many of your listeners know, um, the the Latin tradition, especially in the form of Thomas um, Aquinas, uh, likes to talk about the Holy Spirit as um, as the the, it following the lead of the New Testament as the as the the gift of God, and um, we we receive goodness is communicated to us through the Spirit uh, or by the Spirit of God, and so um, you and I would not be able to share in the life of God, uh, share in the essence that is common to the three, were it not for the Spirit's ministry, were it not for the Spirit communicating to us um, that the all that is is um, in God. So we get into some really interesting and I think important waters um, that um, involve consideration of language like deification or theosis or you know participation in 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 God. I think that has real um, scriptural bite and salience and in and so when we think about what it is that the Spirit of God enables us to share in and participate in, that then I think we're talking on an essential, at an essential level, that the goodness that is common to the three, the holiness that is common to the three, the love that is common to the three, is that which we receive uh, in and through um, Christ by the powerful working of the Spirit as it's as it's um, as the Spirit communicates. To us, um, what is common to um, the three persons of the Holy and Blessed Trinity? One of the uh, ways, you know, you, you're speaking into participation, and mm. uh, I, I can already see how you're uh, connecting uh, who God is um, with then God as Creator and 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 creation itself. Um, how, how you just describe the Trinity, of, of course, is I think. Uh, Goodness, first principles in which uh, you're taking some of those first crucial steps to defining uh, defining God in a way that that doesn't confuse Him with the creation, mm-hmm. but nonetheless does establish um, all the goodness we see in creation, and and of course um, at the top of that would be the Imago Dei in the image of God. Um, I, I love what you you say at one point as you're sort of moved from okay this uh, this very high discussion of of Trinitarian theology and and goodness um, to then uh, what it means for God to be a good creator. Uh, at one point you say simply uh, simply by virtue of their being uh, simply by virtue of their being created things declare the Creator's mm. praise. And then yeah. you go on to say something that uh, I, I just found so profound, uh, just a, a very different way of capturing really the entire story of Scripture. You say, our rebellion against nature 
renders its testimony largely inaccessible to us. Only through grace are we able to receive the fullness of nature's testimony. Mm. And uh, this, this goodness, I mean, this, uh, this statement you make here, um, it, it really, uh, well, it really sheds uh, some light then on what's been lost, uh, so much of what's been lost when we not, we typically like to focus our attention on ourselves, but, but if we understand mm-hmm. who God is as a good creator, mm-hmm. that actually puts our own state of rebellion against nature in a very tragic um, mm. position, but, but not a hopeless one because of that good creator. Can you, mm-hmm. um, and of course you, you interact with a number of Psalms, uh, to, to get to this point, but, uh, how, how do we then understand God's goodness as creator? But then, mm-hmm. um, as this statement, it kind of nudges us to even then understand God's goodness as savior. How, how do we, how do we put those together in a way that at the same time does justice to that creator creature distinction? Mm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, these are these are wonder, wonderful waters in which to swim. <laughs> uh, so I I I I think um, the the reason God creates in the first place isn't because God is lonely or because God has issues, as it were, to work out. Um, it's mm-hmm. because goodness is um, God's goodness is is com- communicative, and God um, creates things that uh, share in the goodness he is in a way that is appropriate to their creatureliness, whether it be a common sparrow or a man or a woman created uh, in God's image and and likeness. Created things share in uh, and participate in the life of their creator. Now, we want to be careful there that the reverse isn't the case, that um, our relationship with God is real in the sense that we are dependent on God for all that we are, but God isn't dependent on us and in order to be the one God has always been. And so when we uh, rebel as we do um, with great uh, enthusiasm and great zeal uh, against our creator, we we really um, we, we, we really are unable to see what is true of the world around us, that it does declare its creator's praise. And the so-called, what some call the nature psalms, and that's Karl Barth's language, uh, there are many of them in the Psalter that talk um, with great eloquence about how the created order declares its creator's praise. It just does so naturally. It doesn't have to sort of think about doing so. It simply does it. And we have um, references as well in in Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah, to how a restored created order declares and sings its creator's praise. And so when one thinks about um, divine goodness in a really disciplined and scripturally specific way, I think it opens up the doctrine of creation in all kinds of fresh and helpful ways. It helps us to see the world around us as, yes, it is um, radically compromised by Adam's fall and our 
our free participation in that. But at the same time, it does still share in in the life of its creator that the birds continually preach sermons to us, <laughs> which is what Jesus teaches. Mm. Um, those sermons are ours to hear if we would have but ears to hear. Um, that's indication of how you know God's kindness, God's goodness isn't absent from a, a world that um, is quite hell-bent on um, living and, and being without God. So God is really relevant to our thinking about created things, what it means to be a creature. And I would suggest that the language of um, participation there helps us to appreciate our creatureliness, that we as creatures have a share in what God is. Um, We have a share in God's goodness. We're not created bad, we're created good precisely because God is good in say. And you also uh, asked about the relationship, Matthew, between creation and salvation. I think when God is at the center of our thinking about creation and salvation, then it then it becomes much easier to see salvation not as a kind of so much as a as a rescue plan, but as a as um, an utter um, as the profoundest expression available in Scripture of God's desire to be our God and we to be his His people, that God doesn't create things that um, are for, God creates things so as to listen to and, and love him. And so when we think about salvation, God saves as God does in, in Christ uh, through the powerful working of the Spirit because God is, is good. And salvation is a, a, a radical and and extraordinary restoration to what God would have us be, creatures who share in his image and long for his likeness. Uh, So I think divine, God's goodness, when we take it seriously, it opens up to us um, all of scripture and it helps us to see how the doctrine of creation and salvation relate to one another. I think it provides us with a much more organic view, if you will, of the relationship between the two doctrines so that we see salvation not as kind of in interrupting of of God's will to create and God's um, desire to share his life with what is not God, but rather salvation as the very um, fulfillment of God's intention that all things be transparent to him and live in accordance with our creatureliness in a relationship of love and, and faithfulness God. You know, one of the major objections, um, not just in our own day, but uh, across across the scope of uh, church history, one of the major objections to to what you're saying about God's goodness, uh, not just in creation, but but also in salvation, uh, or or the way you're describing it here. Perhaps we could even say new new creation in which uh we we see really a a type of restoration of the goodness of of what god god meant the creation to be but one of the the strong objections that that we often hear is that well as evil itself by 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 nature of its very existence um 
really dispels then any possibility of a good God, a good creator, uh, let alone um, a good sustainer. Uh, so here we, we might even enter into discussions of, say, providence. Mm. And uh, this objection is, is very persuasive for some uh, because it's also very existential as mm-hmm. we look around us and as we look at our own lives and we even experience uh, Maybe it's evil done to us or suffering um, or just the pervasiveness of, of this rebellion that you're talking about, uh, even with, with great enthusiasm, um, <laughs> very much rebels at heart. As we see this and witness it, uh, so, sometimes it can, and we see this even with some of the psalmists, as, uh, are, do we lose hope? Um, mm. is, is, does this evil actually, uh, spell the death of God, his existence mm. or, or even, uh, not just his existence, but, uh, but his, the very nature of his goodness and, and whether it is actually, uh, effective in the end, all of these type of objections start to come to the surface, uh, especially, um, in, in the world in which we live. Now, as you sort of enter into um, this complex dynamic between goodness and evil, uh, you Mm -hmm. make a a fascinating point, uh, one that uh, goes back to, uh, say, an Augustine or a Thomas Aquinas, though though there's others as well, and you you say, well, what is evil? And uh, you you describe it uh, not so much as, say, an object— but as a parasite, uh, mm. not so much as something that's, say, uh, caused, um, but something that is actually quite accidental in character, uh, mm. uh, leeching on, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. h- how does this, maybe you could, you could explain what you mean by this, and does this at all, uh, does this at all help us reconsider uh, God's goodness and how that goodness uh, then relates to the evil um, in the world that He has made. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think the only way in which we as Christians can get a handle on evil is by speaking first and foremost, prayerfully and faithfully, of God. Um, one of the reasons I anchored the book in Psalm 119, 68 is again because of of the confidence that David expresses with respect to God in God's very self being good. You are good. You are not bad. You are not evil. You are not good one day and bad another day. You are good. And because of that, you do good. And so when we think about evil, it doesn't have a kind of ontological or metaphysical um, salience. It is, um, as Bart um, famously discussed, it is something of a, sh- of a shadow reality. It is, it is nothingness. Now, that's, of course, not to say for a moment that you and I and the worlds we inhabit isn't ravaged, isn't devastated by the presence of evil and by the demonic and and the satanic. But it is to say that in the good world that the good God makes and sustains, 
that we can't think about evil apart from God and God's triumph ultimately over evil in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. So when we when we think theologically about evil, we we have to we have to constantly have recourse to God and see it as as antithetical in every respect to God. So I'm quite sympathetic to what um, some might call following the lead of um, great teachers of the church, like Augustine, a, a more of a, a privative notion of of evil that is a privation of the of the good. It doesn't it doesn't ex- exist. And now wh- again, what I what I mean, all I mean by that, and I'm by no means um, seeking to be original in this, is that it doesn't exist in the sense that God exists. It is a, cor- a corrupt corrupting. It is destructive, uh, much like a parasite. It only lives in relationship or only exists in relationship to its host. It doesn't have the kind of reality that God has. And so I think as we confront on an existential level, on a societal level, um, as we confront evil's presence within, um, even within within the community of the saints, we have to continually have recourse to God as one who is not evil but is supremely good and who um in his great mercy in the fullness of time sends his son um our lord Jesus Christ in fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and so that is our hope as christians is that we we live in a world in which god reigns that what god is i.e. goodness itself is what gives us our bearings, is what helps us to think clearly, truthfully about what evil is, about its presence, about its future. It doesn't have a future in God's eschatological kingdom, thankfully. (laughs) Um, We we can see what it is uh, when we think about what it is it is not. Um, and we think about what it is is not. It is. It is the, when we think about what it is not. It is the complete opposite of of God. There's nothing good about evil. And so I would suggest to um, your listeners that that the way in which we approach the mystery of evil is through a robust and reflective consideration of God, what God is. And the simple case I'm making in the book, following the lead of the Psalter, um, is that God is goodness itself. You know, very naturally, one of the implications of this is, well, how how then is this goodness um, communicated to us for our benefits, um, both for the sake of of knowing God, but then also living um, in his light? and Naturally, this leads us to to Jesus Christ, and specifically the incarnation, uh, the incarnation in particular. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, is so is so interesting about uh, your approach to the incarnation is uh, you mention uh, you mention at one point that when we talk about the incarnation, what it means for the Son to be incarnate, um, the way that, you know, John, say in John's gospel, the way he speaks of, of uh, Jesus assuming 
the son assuming uh, this human nature, which is he calls flesh. Uh, when we refer to this um, this miracle, we have to be really careful because sometimes there's a, a, a tendency, I suppose, to think of the incarnation as if something is lost, uh, mm-hmm. as if something is taken away from the son. And you warn, for example, about, you know, since we're talking about goodness, uh, you warn against thinking of the incarnation as if uh, the son has forfeited or compromised goodness in, in some fashion. Um, how, how, on the flip side of that, um, if we avoid that, how, well, how do we avoid that danger? And, and then on the flip side of that, how should we think of the incarnation uh, in a way that says the son very much preserves this, this divine goodness, but even then is able, by virtue of, what, of who he is and what he's done, is even able to communicate that goodness to us. Mm. Yes. Um, remarkably, miraculously, he does communicate goodness to us. Uh, when we think about the chief benefit uh, of the um, life and death and resurrection of Christ, which I would argue, um, following the lead of Scripture, is the forgiveness of sins, that we receive forgiveness of sins in and through Christ as we repent before him by way of the empowerment of the Spirit. Um, As we receive forgiveness, we receive a share in his goodness. And so the incarnation is, when we think about God as one who not only is good, but who does good, the focal point of the God's good action toward us, its climax, if you will, is uh, Jesus Christ. And he is the Savior. And when we confess him, when we follow him, uh, when we love him, we receive a share in what is what is his. And what is his is what is common to the Father and the Spirit. And so we receive from him life. We receive eternal life, the eternal life of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that he gives us the life he is, is because he's good. He's not a stingy Lord. He's not a cheap Lord. He's a, a, a wonderfully generous Lord, um, just as is the case with his Father, our Creator. So when we think about um, the incarnation, I think it's it's crucial to not divorce it, a discussion of the incarnation from a from robust contemplation of what God is. Um, what God is, is the measure of what God does. And God does the things God does because of what God is. And so that God saves in the most costliest and su- most surprising of ways in and through Jesus Christ is because God is good. And through Christ, we receive the great benefit of forgiveness and in turn a share in in the divine life, the life that is common to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it's important um, to approach all of the, the great teachings, the great doctrines of the faith with reference to God. Um, it, it That sounds quite simple, but I think in a lot of um, contemporary theology, <laughs> we've forgotten, you might say, just how 
utterly theocentric scripture is. Um, the current project I'm working on involves the speeches and the acts of the apostles. And as your reader or as your listeners will well know, um, Peter and Paul in their preaching are insistent upon one fund- fundamental truth above all else. That is that God raised Jesus. And um, it's when we think about salvation, when we think about the incarnation and, it's, and, and the fact that this great work of the incarnate son um, saves, we're in the realm of God, that Jesus comes from God. He does what he does in relationship to God as the Father's eternally beloved Son, and he returns to God um, as the ascended one. So it's it's just, it's so it's so utterly important for to be faithful to the whole counsel of God as it comes to us in Holy Scripture to recognize that the the, the engine, the, the motor, if you will, of all of God's acts toward us is what God is. In the case I'm making that I hope and, and believe is a biblically charged one is that goodness gives us a, a unique kind of um, way into considering, considering why it is God does what God does. Well, because God is good. You know, one of the ways that we so come in contact with, with the goodness of God, as, as you just mentioned, is, is through Jesus Christ himself. And uh, I, I think that may be the appropriate way to conclude uh, our, our conversation, uh, because uh, when, we, when, our eye, when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to, to who Jesus is, and like you said, not just who he is, but what he does, all of a sudden, uh, well, our, our rebelness, if we can call it that, uh, fades away as we are brought into contact with something uh, so much better, uh, a goodness that uh, not only redeems us, but but ultimately brings us into a union with Christ and communion with with the triune God Himself. Uh, mm-hmm. This this is uh, not just fruitful then uh, for conversations about uh, let's say uh, salvation, but uh, as you hinted at a minute ago, even eschatology, as we start to think about well. If God is is good like this, if if we if we cannot divorce uh, His goodness, who He is, then from from our own identity, uh, that certainly gives us hope as we look uh, we look to the future. I, I would just encourage our uh, listeners uh, if you've not read Christopher Holmes, uh, do pick up one of his books. Uh, you may very much enjoy uh, his treatment on the Holy Spirit. But you may also want to pick up his book, The Lord is Good, Seeking the God of the Psalter. Uh, I, I can't recommend it too highly. I think you will not only walk away with a deep understanding of the very character of our God uh, and of our Creator, but you will also walk away uh, just very moved by um, Chris's uh, spiritual devotion that is, is actually quite contagious as he not only brings you into contact with this good God, but shows you the many, many implications then for what it means to live the Christian life. Chris, thank you so much, uh, not only for writing on the goodness of God, but for also joining us on the Credo Podcast. Thank you so much, Matthew. It's been my pleasure. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. 
There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.